When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Liverpool still searching. Hello and welcome to episode four of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off activities that have caught our eye and are getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football, and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line and wearing the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? Daniel, I'm amazed we even have to ask. It's been an absolutely fantastic weekend. Um, obviously, the obviously the Fulham result, uh, no Fulham result, especially given the opponents that we were facing on the day. You know, it does absolutely perfect, and the manner in which we won. You know, you can't complain about anything. I can feel you beaming. I know you're a bit pessimistic, shall we say, at the start of the season, but I like this radiance. It's a new Matthew. I like it. Let's embrace it. But also, last but certainly not least is the debut appearance of Liam Rafe. Liam, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hope you're ready for some Premier League chat. Yeah, looking forward to it. A good weekend for other fans other than Liverpool fans, but I'm sure we'll touch on that later on. But thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Not a problem, mate. We'll certainly focus on that very shortly, actually. So keep that powder dry for just a moment, because before we chat all things Premier League, I best do some social media bits. I will be talking to the Abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being Spirita.com. For all the tips and predictions you ever need, visit their website. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to Linktree, slash Real Footballcast. Put a dot between the R and the E, you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from, and it's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, 
Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? We can only go to Old Trafford and another serving of Monday Night Football. Now, Matthew, if Eric Ten Hag wanted a reaction from his players, he certainly got one because that showing against Liverpool was like night and day when compared to the week before. It was, and I wonder if maybe the Manchester United fans have sort of taken advice from people in the media because a lot of the talk going up, going into the game was, oh, we don't want this negative atmosphere if they're going to be protesting the Glazers. I, th I think it was Graham Souness was saying, oh, no, you don't need to do that. You know, get behind the players. And you could tell in the first couple of minutes, I think it was... I think it was Darlow in the first couple of seconds, just winning a, a thumping header in the air and just got the crowd behind them. I think that's sort of what the turning point, no, not turning point because it was only in the first minute, but it sort of set the tone for what the rest of the evening was going to be. You know, if Man United fans have said, you know, if they need, if the you know, the fans needed to be behind the players, especially in the environment and the opponent they were facing, and they and they got that in abundance within. So maybe that could be, you know, the message for Manchester United fans going forward is stop your, you know, stop your complaining with what's going on off the pitch. As long as you focus on and you know, cheer the players that are on the pitch, then you might be, you know, set yourselves up for for a couple of decent results. Well, Liam, you're a Liverpool fan, so you've come to the right place at just the right time. For you, that is not going to make for good viewing on Monday, but you could also say the same about the previous two matches in the Premier League. If you had to put your finger on where it's going wrong, is it as simple as the departure of Sadio Mane, or is it a multitude of issues? I don't think you can put this down to Sadio, to be honest. Um, Sadio's a big loss, but you know, in terms of forward recruitments, we did outweigh massively on Nunes. Um, it doesn't help that he got suspended against Palace last week. Um, but I think in terms of the whole dimension of the squad, um, I saw a stat earlier today that seven of the players that played yesterday started against Leicester four years ago. Wow. Um, so you're looking at the dimension and the turner of the squad. We have had new players coming like Canate and Jota who have been roaring successes. But in terms of the midfield, other than Thiago, we've not signed anyone that, you know, comes in and is a guaranteed starter or contender for midfield minutes. So you're probably looking at midfield as the area that where things need to change. But I think in terms of the performance as, as a whole, obviously, I speak for all Liverpool fans when last season was one of the greatest seasons of our lives. It didn't end well, but, you know, fighting on all four fronts for four trophies is something that no club's done before. Um, it's sad that, you know, it's seemed to have had a dire start to this season as a the hangover or whatever you want to call it. But you looked at that City Community Shield game, which I was lucky, lucky enough to attend, and you thought, we can do it again. We've got the hunger, but I really don't know what's happened. You're looking at Milner and Van Dyke fighting with each other. Um, the high line seems to have lost its um, assurity or togetherness in terms of being able to push up at the right time. Um, Trent and Van Dijk have had really poor starts to the season. Firmino's not the player he once was. I think there's a lot of attributes that really came down to that performance. But in all honesty, um, I think it was just a case of that United looked to be more well-organised and possibly wanted it more than us. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So if it's not Sadio Mane, you did mention the midfield. So I'll stay with you, Liam, in the sense that it wasn't just the personnel which was selected on Monday night. It's also the kind of options you have anyway. I know you've got a few injuries, but you look at the likes of Cater, who's not willing to sign a new contract if you read the reports. Henderson has lost his spark. Oxlade-Chamberlain is rarely ever fit. This is the department that needs the biggest refresh. Is it something that happens 
before the end of the month? Is it something that happens in January? Or do you have to wait until next season for this to happen? Well, it depends whether you believe everything you read. There's contrasting reports coming out all the time. I mean, we were linked heavily with Matthias Nunez, who's gone to Wolves. I think he'll be a brilliant sign. I think we saw a bit of that at the weekend in the, their new-look midfield, despite losing to Tottenham. Um, the rumours around Bellingham that he's the number one target for next summer and we're going to work for him. It seemed like Chouamani was the number one target for this summer, but obviously he's gone to Madrid. There's a specific type of midfielder they're looking at. I can understand why they're going for the young profiles. In my opinion, Chouamani and Bellingham will be world-class within the next two to three years if they're not at that level already. So I can understand why they're pitching themselves at that level. But at this moment in time, it's important that we invest now. I mean, as you mentioned, Oxlade Chamberlain can't stay fit, got one year left on his contract. Naby Keita can't stay fit, got one year left on his contract. Curtis Jones flatters to deceive. Henderson's not the player he was two years ago. Fabinho's out of form. I still think he's better than anyone else in our midfield on his day, to be honest. I mean, he's still winning more duels than Rodri and the likes in midfield. But in terms of, you know, the dimension of the squad, he's not where he was a year and a half ago either. Um, it's important we invest now. We've got to recycle what we've got Milner coming into the squad for a year is fine I think you know he lifts standards you saw that with Van Dyke last night but relying on him to start two games in a row especially against Manchester United because we've got a lack of options is worrying I mean and then you've got to start relying more on Elliot than Cavalio because when Elliot and Cavalio came on that was the best we looked for 75 minutes them two in the midfield partnership in front of Fabinho which we won't be talking about next week, but in terms of how we start in midfield against Bournemouth, that's what I would like to see. Um, so we've got to invest now, but Klopp says we're not going to sign the wrong player for the wrong reasons. So it's all about the right player being available on the market. And with what we're reading, it doesn't look like that player is available. So I wouldn't be shocked if we sit where we are. But I think if we sit where we are, we're just accepting that this season we're not going to be able to reach the levels of previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, when you had nearly every defender out injured, Jurgen Klopp was a bit panicky. I know his arm was forced, but signing Ben Davis and Kabak, you kind of looked at those signs and thought, they're not really Liverpool signings, are they? I don't think he wants to make the same mistake in midfield. So there is a point of frustration when you look at the options and part of you thinks, just go and buy someone now. But if you look at the names such as Jude Bellingham, it might be better to wait, but that comes at its own cost, doesn't it really? So Matthew, in terms of cost, it was obviously costly when... Jaden Sancho scored on Monday night. So, obviously that was a good goal, but he was given the freedom of Old Trafford to set his feet, pass the ball into the net. The reason for that was Virgil van Dijk. When you look at that and the row between him and Milner, should van Dijk have been a bit more active in trying to stop that goal? I think he should. I think you can understand what he was doing because we've seen in the past couple of seasons what the handball rule is and how, you know, tricky it can be for defenders so I think he had the right idea in holding his arm behind his back make sure that there was no there was nothing for you know Sancho to aim at and you know, get a cheap penalty and maybe a, maybe a red card depending on how the law would have been interpreted but he shouldn't have he shouldn't have stood still like that he should have at least you know, uh, you know charged forward and tried to narrow the angle and give him uh, give Sancho less to aim at. So, you know, the Milner Van Dyke thing, whether or not you want to blame who gets the most blame, because I've seen some people saying that James Milner should have got more blame because of the way he, you know, he slid in and overcommitted. 
I think in that situation, Van Dijk, it's his job to defend. And you would think an experienced and you know world-class defender like that would know you don't just stand there. You have to go and you at least commit in some way. Because even if Sancho decides to then take a touch, it gives other defenders a chance to, it gives the other defenders a chance to do something around him. So yeah, I think Van Dijk of the two probably takes more of the blame than James Milner does in this situation. Yeah, it was just strange. It was a statue, really, wasn't it? He just kind of offered the whole goal to Sancho. And you think to yourself, you know, this is a top-tier, world-class defender. Just a bit of a brain fart, really. Just it's not like Van Dijk. But I guess you could also say that him this season so far has not been like Van Dijk. But anyway, Matthew, I'll stay with you now. Because in terms of a refresh, that happened at Man United, undoubtedly. But also with Marcus Rashford. So trusted through the middle on Monday night. If Ten Hag is to get the best out of him... Does he no longer need to be a wide forward? Is this his role for the season? I think yeah, I think it may have to be because we've seen how Manchester United are sort of struggling to attract some centre forwards. That's why Cristiano Ronaldo has been you know has been their centre forward for the first couple of games of the season. And if that is their their only option, then he's, he's going to have to unless they can pull out some magic. Um, in the transfer window and bring in and bring in a centre forward, but I think it's not like Rashford is being shoehorned into it. He's shown that he can. He, he's pretty adept at playing both positions, whether it be out wide or through the middle. So it's not it's, it's not as if we're sort of cramming him as that. Oh, it's just a bit of luck that he happens to that he happens to have got he happens to have got a goal the other night, uh, yesterday. So I think it's a position he can play on a regular basis. He's probably not the best option for Manchester United, but. If they can't bring anyone in, and you know Cristiano Ronaldo is going to be the the question mark that he is, whether or not he's actually good for the team, Marcus Rashford probably the best of a bad bunch. I think is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, I think that's a fair option. I think when you look at Rashford, what four goals last season in the Premier League? Some of that can be put down to that penalty miss at the Euros, lack of confidence, injuries as well. There's a step in his game that he's rediscovered. If he can play through the middle and get goals, he's only going to be better for it. And I think it might be by, shall we say, luck rather than design if United do stay with Rashford because Ronaldo's getting, what, a five-minute cameo sulking on the touchline. It's not really helping the team go forward. But, Liam, you kind of hinted at it just a moment ago, but we'll talk about the league title race. I know it's week three just gone. We shouldn't give it too much credence. But for Liverpool, two points from nine, regardless of position, where they are, is obviously an issue. If you're weighing up your team's title hopes, are they gone already? I don't think you can say anything's done after three games. I mean, we clawed back a 14-point deficit to City last year to finish one point behind them and almost win it on the final day. So I'm not, you know, saying we're out of it already, but we need a reaction. I mean, you'd have said the same thing about Manchester United. They were appalling against Brentford, but in the biggest game of both of our seasons, really, when you're looking at the calendar when it comes out in early July, you're looking at when a Liverpool play in Man United and we weren't providing a reaction. I mean, there's lots of stuff going on in terms of injuries, Cater's contract, Nunes being suspended. Um, it's not been the ideal start to the season. It really does feel like um, two years ago when you mentioned earlier about all the defenders being injured and, you know, Kabak, Davis coming in. Um, but we need to act now, failing to act now in terms of, you know, in the transfer market. I mean, I think we could even do with other players, you know, forward as well. Uh, but I don't expect that to happen. I'd be surprised if we sign a midfielder. So I think it depends on what we do in the next week. If we don't sign a midfielder, I struggle to see how we win the Premier League. But 
knowing what this side's done in the past three or four years, winning Champions Leagues, Premier Leagues, the domestic club double, but always being there at the final hurdle. Um, I wouldn't like to count them out, but you know this starts far from our de- ideal, and you know we need to we need to get some wins on the board in the next couple of games against Bournemouth and Newcastle. A Liverpool friend of mine said to me last night, "Liverpool have no money." Now, Matthew, do you ever think of Liverpool as a club in largesse or a club with no money? They're kind of just stable, comfortable. I don't know if they penny pinch or not, but to say they have no money is that a bit of a, a strong statement to make, or is it a right statement to make? I, I don't think it is, personally, because you've seen the money that they have spent in the past, like like bringing in the likes of Canate, for instance. And, but they may not spend in the same lavish way that, um, that Manchester City or Manchester United are trying to do now. But they they always do have that big name that big name signing or, or at least you know at least once a summer, like I remember there was a chant I think it was last preseason that everyone was making fun of on social media it was a Liverpool fan saying you know the Reds have got no money but we'll still win the league and that was after you know bringing bringing Canate for I think it was in the forties of millions something like that so I don't think, they're not exactly lush with cash but they're not exactly as you said, they're not penny pinching either. So, but if you were to put that, they would be more towards the spenders than they are the, you know, the, the the scrimpers and the and the Newcastles under Mike Ashley sort of thing. So, I don't know quite where this narrative of Liverpool, you know, not spending has come from. I think it may be just not spending in comparison to, you know, some of the, some of the bigger clubs, you know, in world football. I think that may be the comparison. But sort of as a standalone team, I don't I don't think you can see them as penny pinchers in any way. Yeah, I think it's the context around it, isn't it? I think it's a very clever way to look at it in the sense that compared to a Chelsea, compared to a Man City, to a Newcastle, they're not in that same bracket, but they're not shy of spending money at all. So I think it's all about comparative statements rather than absolutes. But anyway, in terms of the Premier League title race, if it's got going, let's say it has, Man City are now five points clear. So if anything, the job is more difficult for the Merseyside men. But Liam, if we focus on the Man City game now, 3-1 down for City, becomes 3-0 at the end of the game. Do you think Newcastle fans will be frustrated that they only managed to draw against the defending champions? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You would say so, considering the position of luxury they were in. I mean, most teams three one up against Man City. It's rare that that ever happens, to be honest. Um, but I mean, you've got to give credit to Newcastle. I think there's a reluctance for teams at times to actually play against Man City. Whereas Newcastle essentially ripped up the blueprint and said, right, we're going to play our game. And you can see what Eddie Howe's done to that team. A team that was sacked rock bottom under Steve Bruce with essentially nothing to be hopeful over. And now, you know, they've just drawn with the champions, as you've just mentioned. Um, I think that's the difference between City and some other clubs, you know, that they're able to claw games back even when they are down. You saw it last season against Aston Villa. You've seen it now against Newcastle, um, but Newcastle will probably be slightly disappointed that they've not come away with a historic victory. But considering where they were two years ago, I'm sure they're immensely proud of that result on on Sunday afternoon. 
Absolutely. It's the perfect example of if you offer a Newcastle fan before kick-off the draw, they probably bite your hand off. At 3-1, they're going to be massively disappointed. But Matthew, shall we say the catalyst for Newcastle's impressive showing on Sunday was Alan Saint-Maximin. Now, if Eddie Howe could bottle that 45-minute stretch of performance either side of half-time and have that every weekend, he'd have a seriously good Premier League talent under his hands. It's just the inconsistencies which are letting Saint-Maximin down, isn't it? I think you've said that perfectly. It is inconsistency because Sam Maxman does sort of strike. If you were to put him in a Manchester City, say, I think he, I think he would fit in. I think he'd fit in very well there. You know, if anything were to go wrong with Liverpool, I'm pretty sure that Jurgen Klopp would say I quite like him because he's got he's got the pace that a Liverpool side would want. He's got the finishing ability when you need him to. So he's very much a he's a he's a big six. He's a top six player playing in a playing in a smaller. Uh, side as well, but I think as you said, it's inconsistencies and whether or not that's something that a manager has to get out of him, or a certain coach, or maybe it's the environment or the players around him that need to get need to get him out of that slump. Something something needs to happen because there is a very talented player there. But and you know, if Newcastle are going to you know make this progression up the table, they've shown this you know in this early stage of the season that that's what they're going to do. But you know. Sam Maxwell is inconsistent. Could be the thing. You know, whether or not they're going to get the top six in the European spot this season, it does strike that if they are going to make that jump from, you know, if if they were to finish eighth where they could have finished seventh, you do think that Sam Maxwell just having a couple of off games could be what costs them. So I think that's what Eddie Howe needs to sort of uh, beat out of him as soon as he can. Now, Liam, what do you make of Newcastle's aspirations for the season? A couple of weeks ago, I said I don't see the Magpies finishing seventh, but when you look at that performance and the other contenders in that bracket that are fighting for seventh, that position might actually be up for grabs now, mightn't it? You would think so, yeah. I mean, it's the manner of the performances that they've had. I mean, I'm not sure of the particular statistic now, but other than Liverpool and City, they had the most points at the end of last season from the beginning of 2022. So the transformation is, it's like night and day, to be honest. So... There's no reason why if they can continue with performances like this. I mean, I, I rate their recruitment this summer as well. I still think they're lacking a striker because relying on Callum Wilson for a full season in terms of fitness is something that's proven difficult in the past. I'm not sure Chris Wood is there either. But, um, you know, you look at Nick Pope, solid Premier League goalkeeper, bailed them out a couple of times at the weekend, and Sven Botman, who was arguably third or fourth best centre-back in league and, um, over the last couple of seasons. So in terms of their current team and the picture they're posing, there's no reason why they can't finish seventh. But, I mean, West Ham have had a really poor start. Um, they can capitalise upon that. So I wouldn't say any reason why not. I mean, just look at the football they played. They were brilliant on Sunday. Just It was direct. There was always an outball. I mean, that tend to be Alan San Maximan more than anyone else. But when you've got Bruno Guimaraes, who always looks forward in terms of the way he plays. You've got battlers like Joel Linton. There's no reason why that team can't challenge for top six, top seven. Um, and I'll put it this way, I'm worried about playing them in a couple of games' time. Yeah, actually, that's a very good point. I mean, if Newcastle could make a bit of a statement there, it might just put the other European hopefuls in the spotlight and think, actually, we've got another challenge on our hands. Now, Matthew, Kieran Trippier was in the spotlight, not only for his incredible free kick that made it 3-1 to Newcastle, but also the red card that he was initially shown soon after. Now, a tackle on Kevin De Bruyne that was eventually over to a yellow. Did VAR come to the right conclusion, in your opinion? 
I think I think they did, but I think it is one of those that is very that Kieran Trippier is very lucky to have gotten away with. I think an, another referee on another on another occasion may well have you know, stuck with a red card. Let's put that if it had gone to a, if it had initially been a yellow card and then gone to VAR to check could this be a red card, and he had been sent off. I honestly wouldn't be you know, not that I wouldn't complain, but I wouldn't be surprised just because you see what the league are trying to try and clamp, you know, clamp down on. I think if Trippier was also the last man, that probably would have learned to red. I think in the end, it was probably the right decision, but Trippier can certainly count himself, can certainly count himself lucky. Because if it had been an, if it as I say, if it had been another referee who could have seen it another way, he very well could have could have stayed it could have stayed a red card. Now Liam. Then again, Everton fans will look at that tackle and probably draw parallels when Alan got sent off against Newcastle late last season. So if Alan's was a red, why wasn't Trippier's on Sunday? I think this comes to the question of what consistency of Premier League refereeing have we got. I mean, you could say the same at the weekend previous with Kukurea getting his hair pulled. I mean, I don't know how that wasn't given as a red card. Um I probably lean on the side that Trippier's wasn't a red card. A yellow card is fine. It's a tactical foul. I don't think his legs high enough to be putting De Bruyne in serious danger. Um, City were getting away with a couple of cynical fouls in the game as well. So um, I'm not gonna, you know, say that Alan's last season shouldn't have been a red card either. But I think it's more down to the consistency of Premier League refereeing than you know our team's been hard done by or such or whatever I just think it's something that needs to be taken above with the PGMOL to you know really sort the consistency of refereeing out in the country because to be quite honest I think it's poor compared to leagues around Europe oh there's no doubt about that and that's something we've touched on many times on this show it's not technology it's the frustration of inconsistency and that is two perfect examples of pretty much the same tackle but two different outcomes and you look at them and thinking well how has that happened but We'll never really know. I don't think we'll ever really solve inconsistency in the Premier League because it's just down to probably subjective bites or unconscious bites by referees. It just kind of happens. I don't think you can really coach that out of officials. I'd love to see it, but I think you're kind of batting against the brick wall there. And let's move on now because earlier that afternoon, Leeds got the better of Chelsea by three goals to nil. Now, Matthew, is that the statement victory that Jesse Marsh has been waiting for in the Premier League? It is, and you know whether or not you want to be, you want to have it as a full credit to Leeds or Chelsea having a meltdown, and you know, certainly gifted by the by the first goal, which you can't really you know legislate for in any in any game plan, be it Leeds or Chelsea's. It it does just go to show, you know, many people would have thought Leeds were you know amongst the favourites to be relegated, perhaps because of the way they sort of stumbled towards the end last season. And do they have the you know the magic of Bielsa to galvanise them in such a way? I. Yeah, you have to think that Leeds are probably going to be better than that because they do still have a very good, a very good squad of players, even if they have lost, lost a couple of their main, lost a couple of their main men from last season, namely Rafinha. But if they can just make a couple of additions in the tra- in the transfer window, they probably will be fine. But as in terms of a statement win, I think it is you know, similar to similar to Newcastle and Manchester City. It just go, it's just a result that says right. We are here. We can compete. We're not just going to roll over. I think that's what Marsh would have been looking for more than anything, and that's exactly what he got. Now, Liam, when you look at that performance and Thomas Tuchel, him saying that Chelsea were the better team, do you wonder what game the German was watching? Because I certainly didn't come to that conclusion come full-time. 
Yeah, um, I, this reminds me of Thomas Tuchel towards his end at PSG, to be honest. There's a, there's a lot of complaining. He's never content with what's happening. He's moaning about the transfer business. Uh, you know, I know there's a thing about Chelsea... Uh, players and fans with Anthony Taylor. It's been a while, around for a while. One of my, uh, one of my family members is a Chelsea fan, and he keen, keeps on saying every time Anthony Taylor's the referee, we're not getting any points there. But Tuchel, it's the same when he was at PSG towards the end, talking about his relationship with Neymar falling, uh, not being able to get the best out of the team. But I think you saw it again with Chelsea last year or the year before, sorry, when they won the Champions League. Chelsea were brilliant. So, I don't know. Tuchel seems to have that cycle as a manager. The first two years are brilliant and then towards the end, I don't know if something goes wrong. I mean, it's been a bit of a tumultuous time for Chelsea in terms of, you know, new owners, Todd Bowley getting rid of all the transfer and directorial structure. Um, but, yeah, him saying that Leeds were not worthy of winning the game is quite frankly bizarre I think Leeds were a much better team the way they pressed um, the way the new signings worked I thought Tyler Adams in particular was brilliant in the middle of the park you could say you know they were gifted a head start from the goal from uh, Mendy making a mistake and Aronson pressing really well but as an overall 90 minutes performance Chelsea deserved nothing less than to come away with the defeat there. Maybe not the magnitude of the defeat, but they didn't deserve anything from that game. Yeah, I think you're spot on on that aspect. Matthew, let's focus on that opening goal now. Edward Mendy getting pickpocketed on the goal line by Brendan Aronson. It's clear that Mendy was unsettled by the home fans. Do you think he's gone off the boil slightly? Because this isn't the first blunder he's made in between the sticks for Chelsea. Has he gone a little bit sour? Yeah, I, I think Sarah's is the right way to put it. I think he's sort of approaching that Kepa is a Balaga stage because that I think it may have been around this time in his Chelsea team that he was starting to make a couple of a couple of errors and that's what forced Chelsea to go out and buy, you know, go out and buy a new goalkeeper, even though they'd spent seventy plus million on, on Kepa to start with. So I don't know whether or not he's just become too comfortable because he knows he doesn't exactly have the greatest options behind him. But I don't know. There's, it, there's just, there's just something has has gone wrong with him, and hopefully it's something that he you know, is gonna is gonna be fixed sooner rather than later. At least, at least in Thomas Tuchel's eyes. Now, Liam Raheem Sterling was once again denied by the flag of an assistant referee. No goal yet in Chelsea colours. If you were a fan of the Blues, would you be concerned about the attacking setup as a whole, or do you think goals are just around the corner for their new signing? I think it's more towards the dynamic of forwards they've got up there, to be honest. Um, I like Kai Havertz as a player. Um, I just don't think he's suited to being a false nine in the Premier League. If you go back to his time at Leverkusen, he was never really relied upon as the sole number nine until his last six months when the re football restarted from lockdown. And he did flourish in that position, but really relying on him he can score goals in finals I get Chelsea will love him forever we'll have a similar relationship they've got with Fernando Torres after his Champions League heroics but he doesn't seem to fit that forward line you see Kane and um, Sterling and Mount work for England I don't think you know Kane drops in but he's still got that ability to get into the box and feed off the players around him I think Sterling was a benefactor of a really high chance creating team in Manchester City you know he would always be arriving at the back post benefiting from the passes of De Bruyne 
David Silva, Bernardo Silva, even Fernandinho somewhat. So, and, and not to get the full-backs either. So, it's, it's an adjustment period for Chelsea and Sterling. I think Sterling's going to be relied upon a lot more to do what he was doing at Liverpool, which is going back years, but, you know, being a bit more important in the creative part of the game. Um, I mean, if you look past his seasons, goal scoring's always been the big part of his game. He's really good at getting in those right positions, but he's going to have to play a bit narrower. He's going to have to drop into half spaces a little bit more. And until Chelsea get that natural number nine, I think he's going to have to take on a lot more of that burden. So I think Sterling needs time to adapt to a new team. But Chelsea fans are probably a bit worried about their attack as the whole because they look like they've never played with each other before. And, you know, and just Havertz is finding himself in awkward positions. Mount isn't picking up the same promising positions of opportunity. So I think there's a little bit of work needs to be done there. And whether that's a Bamiyang, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, even without Aubameyang, you could say Armando Broa as a kind of more figurehead fulcrum of the attack. And then two of those three you mentioned, either side, be it Havertz, Sterling, Mount Sterling. It creates a bit of a problem, but at least that's a problem that can be fixed with more goals for the team. I feel that they've got too much of the same thing at the moment. Yes, Raheem Sterling is a good signing, but it doesn't really... I don't feel it advances the team as much as his value of the signing was. It's not like a case of great, that's going to make our team so much better by having Sterling. It's kind of just added to the problem they've already got instead of solving it. So I don't feel that those three playing all the season long together, I don't think it's going to be a fix. It might even cost them Champions League football unless they get a Bamiyang and then they work out how to play with, as I say, two of the three either side. It might mean rotation, it might mean one of them getting dropped, but it might be better in the long term. Right, let's go to West London now. Let's stay in West London sort of technically because, Matthew... I know you've been champing at the bit to talk about this. If we had to label Alexander Mitrovic as a relative villain last week, he's certainly the hero at Craven Cottage as of last Saturday. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, it it just goes to show that, you know, all the talk about whether or not he was a Premier League player, I think he has, well, in the first three weeks of the first three games of the season anyway, proved that sort of myth to be absolute absolute nonsense um you know three goals in three games could have been four but he missed a penalty which at least he got on target was if he skied it all the way over the bar but it just goes to show that is what he is going to be that is what his calling card is going to be a header at you know a header at the back post you know he did it against Liverpool first week of the season that's what he's done now it sends a warning you know it sends a warning to the rest of the league that this is you know this is a side that aren't going to be pushed over this side that you know the last uh two times we've been in the Premier League we've sort yeah. of been we've sort of been the whipping boys but now we've got a proper team together with you know with a manager like Marco Silva you know not not saying we're a proper manager because as much as I don't like Scott Parker, I do right I still do still love Slovis Academy before he didn't sort of setting everything together but he was just a bit out of his depth but now we've got Marco Silva and you know he's playing a system that's getting the best out of Mitrovic who is the main man for us and if he's flourishing then that's 
that's going to be the you know that's going to be the the starting point of, of our season. If he can, if as long as he's staying, as long as he's staying on form, then Fulham will stay on form, and that's that's the that's the crucial bit. Now, Liam, I know you cannot take match of the day as a full picture of the game, but even by watching that and you look at the first half, Fulham were dominant all the way. It may only be three matches in for this season, but is it fair to say they're giving the Premier League a much better go this time around? Yeah, I think the whole approach has been much improved, to be honest. I think we've seen them do in the past, you know, the two approaches of we'll stick with what we've got and then we'll invest a, a load of money and both of those have failed. I think they've recruited smartly. Um, they could probably do with another centre-back, but, you know, so far, so good. I think Mitrovic is key to the way they're going to play this season, as you've mentioned already. But in terms of the being front-footed, that's the type of manager that Marco Silva tries to be. I think, you know, if you look past back at his Premier League experience, he's not really had the squad to be able to do that. And whether, you know, that experience of being in the Championship and relatively being the strongest team there... Um, and then adding quality players like Polina into the team, and then Babu, who's also acclimatised to English football, not massively, wasn't Newcastle, but you know he knows the English game as well. Um, I think adding in those, also maybe missing jigsaw pieces into a team that's ready for Premier League football, is kind of what you're seeing. I mean, it's it is early. I don't want to get carried away, but I did predict Fulham to stay up. Um, I think we saw that with the way they played against us, just the way they approached the game. They thought, you know, we're here, we want to make a go of it rather than maybe something a team like Norwich will do is sit in, consume pressure and try hit you on the counter-attack. They are doing that, but they're much more calculated and assured in the way they transition the ball. And, you know, when you've got somebody like Mitrovic who's full of confidence and putting the ball in the back of the net, it helps, so... Yeah, even though Brentford kind of came back into it on a high in terms of the result they achieved the week previous, um, it's a brilliant result for Fulham. Well, Matthew, I'll temper the dominance comment a little bit slightly because although you did dominate in the first half, it wasn't the case in the second. As a Fulham fan, is that of any concern to you or because it's a derby match and you won in the last minute and you get all those points, does it really matter? No, I think there are still some elements of, of concern. I think part of it was due to the fact that we had Bird Leno in goal. It was his first game. So there may still be some adjustments that need to be made with his you know, centre-back pairing. Centre-back pairing who we're still not sure if it's going to be the centre-back pairing going forward with Tosin and Ream. And so we've got Duffy and Giob, so whether or not they're going to feature into it as well. So I think it can just be sort of not pushed, you know, not just pushed to one side. But it is it's still a bit of concern. But you imagine that with a couple more games under their belts together, that Leno and whoever the centre back partners may be are going to work out some of the, you know, some of the uh, creaks and some of the uh, some of the issues. So obviously the the win does uh, uh, does make it does make it all the better. But it's still just a little bit concerned to say, right, we can't get away with that if we're playing, you know, a team higher up the table. That needs to be sorted out as soon as possible. So get this out of the way now and hopefully things will develop a little bit better uh, moving forward. Matthew, I'll save you very quickly. If you were doing the points in your head over the first three matches, I asked you the question last week, you said you were two up from your expected total of, what, zero is your expectation, you have two. Would you have expected to beat Brentford in week three? Are you still three up or are you five points ahead of your tally? No, I think I think we're probably three. We're probably we probably are still two points ahead. I think most people would have looked at you know a team like Hounslow to say 
this this is a, if we're if we're going to you know, put aside Liverpool, who you know now in hindsight may not be the big scary team that we may have envisioned them to be, Wolves, who are a team who I think will be challenging up near the top of the table as they were last year, uh, challenging for Europe. That is, if you want to say those were you know right off games and we got bonus points from that. Looking at the team sort of around the bottom half of the table, these are the games that we need to be picking picking up points against. And you look at the next two games, for instance, we've got Arsenal away. If you want to put that as a loss, then fine, and a, and a draw would be a bonus. But then we've got Brighton coming up next. You think, if we're going to stay up, that's the game we need to be getting points on. So if we're going to follow that logic, then I think we're still, we're still two points ahead of where we should be because we should be beating Hounslow Town. We should... At least be challenging Brighton at the very least. So we'll see where things come from that. But I'd say we are ahead of where we where we should be. Okay then Liam, let's focus on the team they beat, that being Brentford, or let's focus on one man in particular, that being Ivan Tony. On the score sheet on Saturday, made two goals the week before. He got twelve goals last season. Could you see any Premier League club looking to make a bid for him before the window closes? Possibly. I mean, you see a, there's a few teams after a striker. I mean, I don't think he's at the level to play for a Chelsea or Man United, uh, per se, in terms of teams that are looking for a striker. But in terms of short-term options or, you know, options in their rotation moving forward as they look for people who are available, Ivan Tony wouldn't be the worst option. I think it's it's difficult to say whether Newcastle would target him after him being there in the past. Uh, but he would work in the Premier League. You've said his record speaks for itself. I think I'm right in saying he had one or two goals disallowed yeah. on um, on Saturday as well. So, you know, he's he's a danger. He causes defenders problems. People would were worried that the lack, the loss of Ericsson would um, kind of wane his abilities in front of goal, but I don't think that's the case. Um Brentford have got a really good team. He works in that system, but I think the fact he's able to drop deep, you know, he can stick it on his chest and he's not just going to drop into a hole. He'll still come back and find himself in the box once the ball's been recycled. Um, and again, he's a, he's a terrific finisher as well, useful in the air. So there'd be a lot worse signings for Premier League teams, but I'm not sure anyone's going to pay what it would take to sign him. I think you're probably Brentford with where they are. You're probably looking at forty million pounds with the fact he's English as well, if not more. So I don't think anyone's willing to pay that sort of money for him, considering some of the options that are available around Europe, who also have experience in English football. Yeah, and I guess also the fact that Brentford don't need to sell at this juncture. Maybe you know if they got relegated, second season syndrome and all that, then deals might be started to be made. But right now, I think they could bat away any bid quite easily. But let's look at some North London clubs now. Well, there's only two, but let's look at them both. Matthew, as much as it pains me to say, Arsenal top of the table. They blew Bournemouth apart the weekend. As good as all this is, though, they haven't been given a true litmus test yet, have they? No, I think that does sort of have to you know, temper the expectations, as it were, because of you know, the, the opposition that they have. But at the very least, this is sort of getting a momentum Going for them, you know, if they can rattle, if they can rattle off these wins, and especially if you look at you know individual player performances, like Gabriel Jesus, who I said was going to be a very smart, smart signer. Not not exactly blow my own horn here, but that that is what he's turned out to be. I think he's the perfect signing for a club the size of Arsenal, and you know Arsenal are the perfect club for for someone like Jesus. So yes, the opposition and the team they're playing does have to sort of you know uh, temper the expectation and you know. 
and, and everything like that. You know, is it going to be a different test against Manchester City? Probably. But if they keep rattling off these wins and good performances, then at least they can go into a Man City against in a Man City game. Yeah, with a little bit more confidence, that might be able to get them, you know, a shock result, maybe, maybe a draw, maybe even a win. So I think it's it's a very good start for them, even if they haven't exactly had the hardest of tests. Let's not worry about Man City, Matthew. Let's worry about Fulham. Fulham of the weekend. That could be the litmus test, isn't it? Don't start that. Don't, don't, don't start that. We're not that big. Yet. <laughs> no, it's too early for that. Let's be serious though, Liam. Martin Odegaard. A lot of people have spoke about Gabriel Jesus, rightly so, but Odegaard scored a double on Saturday. How integral is he going to be to Arsenal's season? I think the fact he's been given the captain's armband is testament to, you know, the way he's thought about around the club. As you said, he scored two goals. Um, Everything seems to go through him, whether it's, you know, the press or the ball in terms of transition and attacking phases of play. He's always seems to be in the right position at the right time, as you saw with his two goals at the weekend. So you would think any success Arsenal do have this season would be down to him. But I think you mentioned the other guy as well. Jesus is absolutely incredible. I just think the fact he's been given that onus to lead the line um, that he's not really had at Manchester City, possibly that trust wasn't there in him. I think that them two as a partnership, to be honest, could be uh, pretty impressive, especially if Odegaard's going to continue to hold the 10 space. So... Yeah, as a as a player or the guards, you know, he's been around for what feels like ten years now, ever since he was that tricky, flair, um boasting Norwegian talent at the age of sixteen that went into Real Madrid as, you know, the highest paid teenager in European football. But he's really found his own in terms of being able to dictate a game, find himself in the box in the right areas, and I think Arsenal are blessed to have such a talented player who's only just coming into his prime and when you add leadership qualities into that as well they've got a terrific player let's hop foot to the other side of north london now liam i'll stay with you tottenham edge pass shall we say stubborn wolves in the end one thing i want to raise though jed spence hasn't featured on the bench which is not that alarming but there's nine subs so is it alarming is he going to be off for a loan move already or is it just him getting up to fitness because of a late signing For me, Jed Spence is very much a Tottenham signing and not an Antonio Conte signing. You look at Antonio Conte, when he went into um, into Milan to try and make them into a title-winning team, every single player he he signed was ready for the then and now. You know, you're looking at Lukaku, um, those sorts of players. Signing somebody like, Jed Spence feels intrinsically like Tottenham in terms of the fact they want young English players who, you know, are coming off the back of really good seasons. I mean, looking at players like Jack Clark, um, not English, but Pape Matasar, it feels like one of those type deals. You're not going to get Conte to use a player just because Tottenham, you know, feel like Jed Spence could be their future right back, another Kyle Walker type signing. Um, but is the fact he's not played a lot. I mean, I think when you look that you've got two right-backs who I'm not fully convinced on Emerson, but Conte seems to trust him. Um, Doherty's an experienced Premier League option as well. I think, you know, he's just starting where you would expect him to start in the picking order. There's no reason that can't change. But again, coming back to the fact that Conte wants ready-made winners, 
I'm not convinced that he fits that bill yet. Obviously, he was brilliant in the championship last season and was a part of a team that rarely lost after Steve Cooper's appointment. But is he ready to come into a team that's going to fight for a Premier League title this season, which lots of people seem Tottenham are going to do? Um, I'm not so sure, but I'm convinced whether Conte leaves in the next 12 to 24 months that Jed Spencer will outlast him and be a terrific signing nonetheless. If you're talking about the game, to touch on your earlier point, I think Wolves are going to be that. I don't want to criticise them, but Wolves are pretty boring to watch. They're very pragmatic. They're quite direct. Um, I think Guedes, who's been in a team like Valencia that have really struggled in Spain for the last few years, all the stuff off the pitch is um, is an attributing fact to that. But, you know, I think he got 13 goal contributions for them last season. Those sorts of signings are big. Matthias Nunes is they've got an ability to bring in players that are possibly punching a level above where they are considering the finish in the league last season. So I rate the transfer business. I mean, letting go of someone like Connor Cody is um is a big call considering, you know, the impact he's had on the club and its rise. But Tottenham and Wolves in a game, it's kind of the two teams you wouldn't want to pair together. I think Tottenham are very good at what Wolves are doing, at what Wolves are trying to do, and you kind of saw that in the balance of which was a bit of a, a tepid game in the end, but Tottenham probably just edged it. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I was asked the other day, actually, name defensive teams in the Premier League. Matthew, does such a concept exist anymore? Can you actually say, right, that's a defensive team, that's a defensive team? Are we kind of past that point? It's just different kind of styles, but no one's really defensive. Does that make sense? I, I see where I see where you're coming from, and I think there have been a couple of examples. You look at Sheffield United, their first year in the Premier League, where they only I don't know if it was the best. It can't have been the best. Right? It was certainly high, but they only conceded 39 goals. Yeah. Um, and you look at Wolves at the start of last season. I think they were at one point on pace. I think they had the third best defence or had conceded like 13 goals in 20 games or something. I mean, the contrast with both of them is that they had only scored like. And they were on. They were scoring a goal a game at the same rate, but conceding less than a goal a game. So I think there are still the occasional. There are a few teams out there that are defensive first and you know try to grind out a point and maybe you know grab a couple of one 0 wins. I don't think it's as prevalent as you know as as it could be or maybe it should be. But I think there are still there are still one or two teams that are making it their their uh, their mantra and their focal point is that we're going to be hard to beat first rather than a step on the front foot and try to attack a team. Yeah, I think it's a more softer approach this season. But Matthew, I'll stay with you because West Ham. We spoke about them last week and whether David Moyes has squeezed all he can out of them. It's now no goals in three matches. It's bottom of the table already looking tired. Something's not quite right at the London Stadium, is it? This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. No, and I, uh, one of my uh, my uh, boss, uh, my boss at work is a West Ham fan. He sort of said on Twitter that I think this is it, this is finally the the West Ham that they are that 
they they expect you know they've been teased for the past couple of years with you know trips to Europe and finishing and finishing high up in the table but now this is you know this is the real West Ham this is what it, it was all along so maybe it was just a case of I, I said this um the couple, I said I said this for the majority of last season that maybe the season before was a bit of a fluke in that they took advantage of you know Manchester United and Arsenal and Spurs and all the other teams to sort of having their bad their, their off moments as it were whereas now I think maybe maybe the, the fatigue of having to play across all the multiple competitions in the past couple of seasons has sort of finally caught up to them and they don't have the squad depth they have really to compete um, across all levels. You know, they do still have, what is it, a week, week and a half left of the transfer window in which to sort things out. I do still think they will be a solid team. I don't think they'll quite be maybe challenging for Europe the way they have been in previous years, but I, I still expect them to see maybe seventh, eighth or ninth. And yeah, I think there is a decent core of a you know, core of a squad, and they do have enough individual talented players on their own to sort to sort this out. So I don't think it's doom and gloom just yet for West Ham, just maybe a little bit of a small setback. Yeah, I think regression to the mean is probably the best way to sum up West Ham at the moment. But Liam, Brighton, they'll be delighted with another impressive showing. Not only that, but three points. Now the only goal they conceded this season is an own goal at Old Trafford. Are they a defensive team by accident only because they have so much of the ball themselves? Um, possibly. Um, I'm not. I wouldn't picture Brighton as much as a defensive team, as you say. P- possession dominance probably a better description. Uh, but I think that's just testament to the manager and what he's managed to do at other clubs and what he's doing now. Um, Brighton feel like one of those teams that are difficult to predict. You don't know what's going to happen from one week to the next. I think what we've seen at the start of this season is. Uh, what lots of people have expected to happen for a while without actually improving the squad dramatically that much. You'd be, you could possibly say they've got weaker with the departures of uh, Ben White, um, Kukurea, uh, Neil Mopai looks like he could be on his way out as well. They've lost players over the last few years. I know Bissouma, of course, Bissouma. Um, you're looking at players they've lost and you know they've replaced them well with players like Enoch Mwepu, uh, Moises Casado, um, Pervis is stooping on a Champions League semi-finalist last year with Villarreal. They've got a good recruitment policy, uh, but the way they play just seems to right. We've got a player there that's just going to come straight in and work. And I don't know what it is. You know, they don't really have a reliant goal-scoring striker, and that's what everyone said. Brighton are missing this striker to become a really good team. They've tried it in the past. It's not really worked. Uh, they've brought in Uldav this season. I'm not convinced that going from Belgium to Premier League red is going to happen overnight, but he could be an option. But Trossard, the players were, players like him, McAllister, Gross, these types of players that aren't necessarily forwards but will score goals or can play in forward areas, um, seems to work for them. Um, I'm not sure how he gets this out of the squad. I think Brighton's squad is punching above its weight where it is at this moment in the season. But I think that's testament to the manager. Brighton have got a really, really good manager on their hands. And I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, one of the big six jobs comes available this uh, this season or um, possibly West Ham or something like that if Graham Potter's at the top of their list to replace their managers that they've sacked or let go of. Now, Matthew, pod squad member Max will be delighted with Palace's win over Aston Villa at the weekend. I mentioned seventh place is wide open... Could the Eagles swoop into that position at the end of the season? 
If you'd have asked me that when Patrick Vieira first took over at the start of last season, I would have said that's probably something you know for five, six years down the line. But the way they have been, you know, last season and the start of this season, you honestly can't write them off and you can't write them, rule them out. You know, we've seen teams in the past make you know, those smaller teams make that run. That's how West Ham got there, um, for instance. Christopher Palace, the way they have played and the way they've set up and the well, way they are run as a, as a club, you know, so if you know, things are going um, things are going well and they need to improve or make a few changes in January, you, you, would, you, you trust them to make the right decisions now, which is a bit of a far cry from what they previously were, which was just a team doting along with, you know, everyone in the starting 11 over the age of 50 because of how long they held on to everybody. But you look at the team they have now, I don't think it's that absurd to, to. I don't think it's that absurd to suggest. I think seventh is a real possibility for them. They will probably need a bit of luck from elsewhere. You know, if you know Arsenal crumble in the way they have, or if Liverpool don't get back to what they were. You know, I, I expect them to, but if Liverpool can't get back to where they were, you do, I I don't think it, I don't think it's too absurd an idea. So I think seventh is there as a possibility, but they are going to need some help in order to make it happen. Don't rule it out. That's what we're saying. You might have to rule it out for Aston Villa, though, Liam, because things aren't quite clicking for Steven Gerrard this season. He was quick to criticise his players after the game. Also, the referee, to a certain degree, because Luca Dean was a judge to have handled. Should it have been a penalty in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, you've seen them given time and time again. I think it comes back to the same conversation we had earlier. If you're in that situation, there's no consistency in those decisions being given when they should be given, if the rules are as they are. So, yeah, he'll probably be feeling aggrieved that that's not been the case. But I don't know, to be honest. It It's one of those... Aston Villa, I mean, I love Steven Gerrard. I'm not going to say a bad word about him as a player, as a manager... What he did with Rangers was brilliant. Aston Villa was that test for him to show, you know, has he got what it takes to be everyone's lauding him as Klopp's replacement, obviously because of what he did at the football club. But um, I'm not convinced that where we are now, he's going to be that sort of manager, which pains me to say it. Um, Villa are too inconsistent. I mean, you saw what, um, what Palace did similar to what they did against us, to be honest, a week previous, was expecting Zaha to be the man to cause problems for defenders, drag players out of place, running behind. And I think we're seeing a new Zaha, to be honest, in terms of the freedom he's being given in that central number nine position. Um, and it's working. And to be quite honest, Villa couldn't handle him. So I don't know. Villa are an interesting one. I really rate the transfer business. Bubakar Kamara is one of the most exciting young midfielders in Europe. Uh, Diego Carlos is an experienced European-level centre-back. Um, they could possibly do with more in forward areas. I know the deal for his Milosar's collapsed, but I'm not sure where things lie. Gerard's probably one of the favourites to lose his job as Villa fans are already on his back, so... It's a shame that things aren't working out, but I think it's just a case of that Palace are in a much better spot in terms of where they are in moving forward as a club. Um, and Villa have got lots of work to do, whether that's with or without Gerrard. Well, let's stay on the topic of losing jobs because, Matthew, Southampton got the better of Leicester at the King Power, a win that eases the pressure on Ralph Hasenhutl that adds more of it to Brendan Rodgers' shoulders. The Ulsterman is now the favourite to win slash lose the sack race. Can you see this being the case? 
I I wouldn't be surprised. I think it is a case of Brendan Rodgers has taken them as far as he can go. He obviously had you know, two seasons of finishing fifth. Then last year was a bit of a was a bit of a disaster, you know, in you know, in recent comparative terms at the very least. So you think has were those again, were those two first two seasons a fluke? Not necessarily because I do think Leicester are a good team and they do have the players. But I think it is time for you know for a general restart of most things. Uh, when it comes to Leicester, and you see with some of the moves that they've made, you think that is going to be, you know, they're selling off Casper Schmeichel. Wesley Fofana looks as if he's going to go. James Madison could be on his way out. Jamie Vardy is, you know, he's still Jamie Vardy, still a great player, but is getting on a bit. You think if there's going to be a time for, you know, similar to Crystal Palace in a way, let's just start from scratch, as it were. We've got, we'll have the finances behind us because the owners are pretty generous in their spending. And if you can sell off the likes of Madison, for instance, give you a big give you a big boost, and obviously the money from being in the Premier League, I think it is time just for them to, you know, as, as I say, start from scratch. And if that means Brendan Rodgers has to go, then I don't, I don't want to say so be it because it's not as if he's done a bad job with them. But there's just a case of we just need you to move aside. Let's just you've taken us as far as we can go. Let's see what someone else can bring in. Yeah, I think we're hitting the end of the road on that front. But Liam, finally, second in that list is Frank Lampard. The Toffees are off the mark this season with a draw at home to Nottingham Forest. Their struggles continue, though. It's a start to their campaign in terms of points, but how do you see things panning out? Do they have enough in terms of goals for them, or are they going to go down? You look at their current options and think if Dominic Calvert-Lewin can't stay fit, which he showed his difficulty last season at the start of this season. Um, Rondon actually didn't play badly from what I saw of the highlights. He did have a really um, chance, a good chance which went wide, which he created from nothing. And I think we've seen that he can do it in the Premier League, but I don't think they can rely upon Solomon Rondon to keep them in the league in terms of scoring goals. Um, Anthony Golden could be on his way out. Um, he's never really shown the goal-scoring side of the game, but when Chelsea are coming in and potentially offering 60 million quid, you'd think that Everton are going to snap the hands off. They've not replaced Richarlison. Uh, they've made some decent signings. I don't think James Tarkovsky's a bad signing by any means. Um, Amadou Onana, in his limited minutes for Lille, has shown a lot of promise. He, he's the type of player that suits the Premier League in terms of physicality and the way he moves through midfield. Um, he's probably more mobile than the midfield options they've got as well, so that helps. But, you know, you're looking at Deli Ali on his way out to Besiktas. It's not really worked out, but he, if he could have refound his form, could have been a source of goals. I'm not sure where the goals are going to come from, so it looks difficult to see Everton staying in the Premier League if they don't act in the next eight days. But I actually thought Lampard would get the squad round and revive them as he did towards the back end of last season, but the start to this opening three games looks like that's proving difficult. Yeah, they just seem really flat, don't they? And yes, they might get £60 million for Anthony Gordon, but when you look at Everton's track record in the past in terms of business, yes, the summer hasn't been too bad, but as a whole, they're terrible at spending money, so they might just be better trying to keep Anthony Gordon, but I don't think they're in that kind of position to do so when you look at their FFP record and the kind of reports that are coming out that there might even be the Premier League snooping around us to potential punishments. They might, might have to sell anyway, so not looking good on that front. Watch this space. But enough for us, because we've hit full time now, so I just need to do the admin, which is simple as thanking my two top guests. Liam, thanks for your time this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed that one, and would like to join us again soon. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure for coming on. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. And Matthew, thanks for wearing the captain's armband, and I hope you'll join me next time. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. 
Right, cheers guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.